Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. An honor to have you all here again today. We're continuing our discussion from where we left off last week. And last week, we asked the question, how can we experience emotions as vibrations in awareness, being more interested in the awareness in which that experience is vibrating than that experience itself? So essentially, we were looking at the ancient philosophies of Tantra to investigate how we can more adequately and appropriately deal with suffering. And so I gave you kind of a very brief picture of the tantric worldview. And today I intend to go a little bit more deeply into this picture. Now, here's the thing. Having understood this picture of reality should contextualize your suffering in such a way that it no longer appears as suffering. Or in other words, it is no longer experienced by you as suffering. And the reason is, if properly understood, if the insight of this school of thought is dutifully grokked, not just on an intellectual or conceptual level, but with the very fibers of your being, then almost immediately by the end of this lecture or within uh, inhalation, your perception of who you think you are and what you think the world is should have radically altered. So the goal is these argumentations should instill in you a conviction which is as follows. Right now, you might feel like you are in the world. You know, the philosophy should teach you that the world is in you. You know, now you feel that consciousness is a byproduct of brain and physiology. But this philosophy should show you that actually this world is emanated from consciousness, that from awareness came the mind and from the mind came the body. So the mind and body are metaphors for awareness. And that means your entire personality, your conglomerate of constructs that makes you you, um, exists within you, but not as you. Of course, at the end of this philosophy, in order for it to work, it must be more than just an idea. And I often joke, you know, we've all been to Coachella and we've met that guy who's on acid and he's screaming, we're all one, man. You know, he's had his ego death. He's always very excited to tell you about his ego death, very smug about it. (laughs) But he's telling everyone about his ego death, right? And then on the car ride home from Coachella, somebody cuts him off in traffic and he starts to swear and cuss. And what happened to the we are all one madness that he had a couple of moments ago? Now, the idea is if you have a concept, it won't do you any good. It actually might harm you more, you know, because you think you know. You think you have this concept, but it doesn't actually do it for you. So before we get into the philosophy today, I have three disclaimers. Um, okay, by the way, if the internet cuts out, it happens sometimes. I will return. Um, but I have three disclaimers, and I do this often. So some of you have heard this quite a lot now. The first disclaimer is um, there is a big difference between the concept of eating a strawberry and the actual eating of the strawberry. And no matter how many concepts about strawberries you have, if you crave the strawberry, nothing short of eating it will do it for you. 
You know, so that's important. What I'm going to give you today are concepts. They are worth nothing to you. And in fact, um, they are so worthless that you're probably better off without them. You know, so let's make that very clear. The concepts I will give to you today is not the thing in itself. So these concepts are only valuable to you insofar as they are able to point beyond themselves to an experience that you can have in your own awareness here and now. So in other words, unless you are able to verify these truths in your own experience of life, discard them. Do not take anything on faith because nothing weakens you more than believing in things that are not true for you. You know, so that being said, I am going to attempt today to prove to you certain things on a phenomological level. What that means is many uh, schools of philosophy or religious institutions are faith-based in which they kind of peddle some concepts. They take your money and they say, okay, this is what happens when you die and you're just supposed to believe it. And if you don't believe it, your parents will be upset at you and you'll probably get excommunicated from your whatever community you're in. So these are faith-based traditions and, um, you know, they're okay. They help people sleep at night, sure. And as Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. Well, neither can she live by concepts alone. But to a point, concepts can help you. Mm. So those are what we call faith-based approaches. This approach is a phenomological approach, meaning it appeals not to faith, but it appeals to two things. First, pratyaksha, which in Sanskrit translates to direct experience of life, and also sattarka. Sattarka in Sanskrit means uh, reasoning. So direct experience is your data and you reason from that data. So that means Indian philosophy is all about debate. If I cannot show it to be true right now in your own awareness, then please feel free to debate me. You know, stop me at any point, ask any questions. Last week, Harini and Austin were asking some really great questions about the Holocaust and karma. And it's only through those questions that we can really get deep. You know, so please um, ask as deep a question as you can and we'll together unpack it. Of course, there'll be a question and answer at the end of the lecture. Okay. But anywhere in the middle of the lecture, please drop a comment like that doesn't qu quite sound true, Nish. Okay, that's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is there is no amount of work that you need to do to become enlightened. It is already your natural state. So perfection, peace, joy, bliss, these are all inherent in you. It is an unfortunate byproduct of capitalist yoga that you are sold a narrative that you need to heal, that you are somehow broken by the forces of culture around you, and now you have to pay a $59 a month subscription so they can heal you with a bunch of weird poses like dog pose. Okay, no, that is incorrect. The fundamental assumption or axiom of yoga or South Asian philosophy is you are already perfect. You just forgot. That's it. Um, this is not a quest to become better. You are not growing and you are not healing. You are just recovering a true identity. So in the Yoga Sutra, the 6th century BCE text, there is that line, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha which translates to yoga is the complete cessation of the modes of the mind. Very packed statement, we won't get into it. But the next line, this is beautiful. Tada drashtu svarupe vastanam. Then you are established in your own true nature. It's not, oh, you get better after you succeed yoga. It's you're back to where you always were, always have been and always will be if only you could realize it. 
it's a beautiful poem, you know. Um, an Indian poet he said, "Oh, they sit by the river and they die of thirst." <laughs> so it's like that.、Um, that being said. There is no amount of poses you need to do, no amount of philosophy lectures you need to attend, and no amount of meditation you need to do. So I've often said it's not like there's an XP bar in the video game of your spirituality that you need to fill up with an X number of classes, asana, meditation. You know, a big misconception in yoga is that the poses are there for you to become spiritual. But in actuality, historically speaking, the poses weren't invented by people as tools for spirituality. They were spontaneously expressed by people in rapturous states. So the postural part of yoga is a dance form, and it's a dance form expressing spirituality, not trying to attain it. You know. So this is an important、uh, disclaimer. All your spiritual practices, whether that's worship, whether that's meditation, postural yoga, karma yoga, all of that is not a means to become spiritual. It's an expression of the spirituality that you already are. That being said, all it takes is one insight.、Um, it's kind of like a trick picture. You know those? You're looking and you can't quite see the sailboat, but once you see it, you see it. It's like that. I'm going to give you about three or four arguments today. Each of them will say the same thing in a different way. Once you see it, you see it. You know, but it cannot just be intellectual. It can't just be, oh, I conceptually understand that I am not the mind, I am not the body,、uh, I am all minds, all bodies. It can't be that. You have to really experience this on、uh, an intuitive level. So what I'm going to do today is give you some of the deepest non-dual、um, ideas, or the what we call arguments from Advaita Vedanta tradition, and then extend from there into Kashmiri Shaivism to further elaborate what suffering is for and how you can change that experience of suffering. Okay, having said all of these disclaimers, let's begin. Um, this is a phenomenological philosophy, meaning it starts with where you are now, which is what your experience of the world is now. Undeniably, you experience your life as an individual. You know what in this tradition we call jiva or personality, and a jiva is an experience of being embodied as here I am and there is the world. You know, I'm over here, and Christina's over there, and I know she's going to have really great questions for me later because she always does. And I'm like, okay, I'm experiencing it as I'm over here at Ness, and you're over there at Ness. And I live in a world of many things, other people.、Um, there's a lot of form in this world, and most noticeably, there are the, there are two categories of things, or maybe three things that I really like, meaning things that I chase. Things that I really don't like, things I run away from, and things I couldn't care less about—neutral things. And life is incredibly restless because I'm always engaged in some anxious running away from or running towards some other thing. You know, so it cannot be denied. One of the fundamental human experiences is a feeling of lack and a restless desire to fulfill that lack with some external thing. You know, and we say there are generally three orientations in doing this. So, in the Buddhist and the yogic traditions, the goal is to encounter reality just as it is, without any superimposition onto reality. The axiom is reality 
is perfect. It is complete. The only problem is you're not seeing it. What you see is not what's actually there. What you see is what you're putting there with your labels and superimpositions. So one example for this is say you're looking at a table. Are you actually seeing the table in front of you or are you instead interacting with your mental thought construct tableness, which is of course influenced by every other table you've seen before and your own value judgment as to how useful this table is to you. So a joke that we have is say you're at a party, I've given you this joke a couple of times, but you're at a party and across the room, there's a really cute stranger, you know, and you're like, okay, just my type. Uh, it's got the Robert Smith eyeliner from The Cure. I'm ready for that. You go across um, the room, you go and talk to them and they look cute across the room, but now you're there and you're talking to them and they suck. They're awful. Their opinions are totally problematic. They're rubbing you the wrong way. Notice how they perceptually become less cute. Like they actually look less cute. Your perception of the world has changed. So you were never seeing the cute Robert Smith stranger across the room. You were seeing a thought construct, a kind of prism through which the light of reality was being filtered into a certain color for you. And it just so happened that you listened to Just Like Heaven four times that day. Um, and so you had a particular propensity for that individual. Right next to you is someone else who's like, really hates that kind of 80s-sensitive goth boy rock and um, is not attracted to the stranger. Neither of you are looking at the person as they are. You are only looking at your own coloring of that sense event. So let's say, okay, you go across the room and you talk to uh, uh, low-rent Robert Smith and then you're very disappointed and you go and you sit down. And in front of you, there's a table. You are sitting next to a carpenter. It's quite obvious that the two of you are seeing very different tables. You know, to you, it's just holding your solo cup. To them, oh, it's grain and look at the woodwork and it's maple and, you know, so your reality is never what's there. At least for now, your reality is only what you're putting there through the various constructs that you have used to filter reality. So the general idea is you've got a prism. You were handed this prism by your culture, by well-meaning guardians and parents and friends, and they align the prism in certain ways for you in order to present you with certain colors. You know, there are three general orientations for this prism. The first angle, we call it the red ray of security and safety. This is where you look at the world in terms of what can give me security, what can give me safety. I don't feel inherently secure or safe, so I look for it in other things. Maybe I look for it in money. You know, I want to accumulate money, so I'll have a house and I feel safe. Maybe I look for it with degrees or institutional validation, like I need MoMA to have this many retrospectives or whatever um, in order for me to feel secure. And most notably, you look for it in relationships. So anytime you enter into a relationship, what you care about most is how safe does that person make me feel? You know, now the irony is nothing is built to last as the Buddha would point out in 6th century BCE. So ultimately nobody or no thing can completely give you that feeling of security that you intuitively are looking for, you know. So that's the red ray, we call it security consciousness. And this is the kind of thing that leads people to, you know, go to war because they want land. Land is the most permanent thing there is. And, you know, there's that very, uh, um, beautiful Ozymandias Rex Shelley poem, you know, the harrowing image of the king crumbling in the dust because even land, you know, 
gets destroyed. So the idea is nothing in the world lasts. But if we go out looking for security and safety, sooner or later we realize that. You know, sooner or later we do. But until then, they're suffering. Yes. They're suffering because we want stuff to give us security, but it don't give us security. So that's that's one way to look at the world. Then there's another orientation. We call this the orange ray. And the orange ray is when you're looking for pleasure in the world. So that's the orientation where you sense that sense of lack, but that lack is I'm not entertained enough. I'm not pleasured enough. So I need to go out and extract as much pleasure from things as I can. You know, when do I re-up at the rave? Or what if I did the coke at four o'clock and then it won't ruin my molly at 12 p.m. You know, so there's like all this kind of I'm in the world and I'm trying to figure out my chemical concoction, so to speak, which is trying to get everything right. Now, um, you'll notice that as we've talked about this before, there are often four problems with this orientation. The first is that any pleasure that you get out in the world is by nature transient. So it comes, it's there for a little while and then it goes. You know, even the longest orgasm is only a couple of seconds. And the uh, rave does finish quite quickly. And often you're left with this feeling of, oh, that was it. The anticipation was so much more than the experience. Not only that, there is a threshold. So the more of it you enjoy, the less of an ability it has to delight you. You know, they call this chasing the dragon in the heroine circles, where the First high, nothing will ever be that good, you know? So there is a margin of diminishing, what, marginal diminishing returns? I don't know, some economist bro in the room needs to tell me. But diminishing returns, right? So that's the second thing. The third thing is, because of the first two things, you need to continuously up the threshold, which causes painful imbalances in the body that often harm more than the pleasure was worth. So all pleasure ultimately creates pain, which causes you to seek pleasure even more to dull that pain. So the fourth, and this is the nail in the coffin. The nail in the coffin is this cycle of transiency, threshold or numbing, and imbalances in the body that cause even more discomfort all lead to a very degrading condition of addiction and patterns. So, you know, we feel kind of offended by our own patterns. Like, oh, we're better than this, but we keep getting... So pleasure, that also doesn't work. The final one is the power orientation. Okay, I don't feel like I'm enough. So now either I need to be bigoted and make other people smaller or I need to be a megalomaniacal like boss guy and go out and, you know, be Alexander the Great. I, I don't know. So the diff- the, this approach is to try to be the king, be the uh, queen, be the empress, that whole thing. Um, and that also doesn't work. Okay, so obviously it's not this cut and dried. Our experience of the world is usually a mixture of red, orange, and yellow. Here's the thing though. This is the most important thing. There is, in the desire for security, in the desire for pleasure, and in the desire of power, something intensely spiritual. You know, so these things aren't to be demonized because they actually point to something about your fundamental nature. You know, so the very fact that you want these things shows you something interesting. And we're going to unpack what that thing is in a moment. For now, suffice to say that all spirituality begins with the insight of suffering. You know, the Buddha's famous anityam anityam sarva anityam. 
Shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam. Dukkam, dukkam, sarvam, dukkam. Which translates to changing, changing, everything is changing. Therefore, empty, empty, everything is empty. Therefore, suffering, suffering, all is suffering, you know. Uh, beautiful line, but the Buddha, you might think a bit of a party pooper, you know. Birth is suffering, life is suffering, death is suffering. Uh, he would only be a party pooper if he stopped there, but the Buddha went further. He said, no, there is a way out of suffering, and that way out is to stop pretending like you're not suffering, A, and B, pretending like your things that you cling on to are going to last forever, because they won't. You know, old age, sickness, and death. As much as you want to put the old folks away in the home, as much as you want to hide from sickness, as much as you want to avoid looking at death, closed caskets and all that, those are all realities in life. And don't wait till you're 70 to figure that out. So the Buddha was all business, you know, very serious. He was like, no nonsense. And you know what? It's truly harrowing, but... People should, I think, spend more time talking to old people because usually, you know, your grandmother and grandfather, if you're lucky enough to still be able to talk to them, are usually very civil and nice at Thanksgiving or whatever. But if you spend a lot of time with them, you might actually find out that there's a lot of regret and a lot of pain under the surface, you know. Um, but often we're scared to really talk to old people because of what that might mean for the way that we live. <laughs> so that's the irony. So the Buddha's like, look, this is a thing. And we need to devote our lives right now to figuring that out, to figuring out what it means to be alive. So remember, three classes ago, I gave you three orientations to this problem. The first is the fuck it orientation, which is the horizontalist, a hedonist approach, which is, you know, like post-World War One. there's this sense of deep despair, hopelessness, futility. So I'm just going to go about, and I know all of these things is going to harm me, but you know, Sisyphus pushes the rock up the mountain. Just make what meaning you can. So there's that approach. Um, and we're going to talk about why even that approach is holy in a little bit. The second approach is the verticalist approach, which we talked a lot about last week, which is the I'm out, I'm Audi five thou approach, which is the Buddhist and yogic approach, which is to disengage from the world. It's also the Christian approach because in Christianity, that line we talked a lot about last week, wisdom with God is foolishness with the earth. You know, and Jesus is always like walking around, sleeping on the earth. And he's like, look at the, uh, look at the uh, lavender. Even King Solomon is not clad in raiment finer than this lavender. You know, and he would look at big buildings and say, not even one stone would be left on this temple. So you can see these traditions advocate a kind of turning away from the world. You join a nunnery. You join a... <laughs> Get thee to the nunnery, Ophelia. It's a spiritual command. Um, you know, you join a Dominican, a Franciscan fraternity. You shave your head. You change your name. You leave the world having seen that it's a mirage. You know, then there is a third approach known as the integral approach. And these terms, horizontal, vertical, and integral, come from the philosopher George Furstein, a great uh, uh, commentator of Indian philosophy. Um, so we've already talked a lot about the verticalist approach. Today... I want to give you a slightly deeper argument. And this argument, a lot of you are, um, you know, not new to it. But what I'm going to try to do is give you four ways of understanding non-duality and then show you how Kashmiri Shaivism or what we call maybe Kaula Tantra takes it one step further, you know. So the first argument is this. And by the way, this argument is like the precursor argument. 
We call it the two steps to non-duality, which is kind of an irony, but this argument is one of two arguments that will get you to non-duality. For those of you who have heard these arguments before, it's important to repeat them. You know, because remember, it's worth taking the time revisiting these arguments, because like we said, all you need is one insight. You know, all you need is just one insight and the trick picture reveals itself um, and you're free. The Here's the test, by the way. The test of whether or not you have truly understood this argument is as follows. You should be fearless, you know, because once you understand this argument, you will know, not only think it, you will know that there is nothing outside of you that can harm you because everything is within you. Secondly, you should be all inclusive and all loving because you know that nothing exists outside of you. Um, everything is within you. So therefore everything is included. Uh, this is actually a very difficult ask because that means you must love your political enemies, you know, uh, knowing them to be in you. That's a big ask, right? You know, Hitler's not out there in the world being evil. He's a part of you. All things are within you as much as Mother Teresa is, you know, it's a radical ask. The third thing is it should make you, oh, by the way, I should say one more thing about the inclusivity. Remember last week, uh, we talked about the cremation ground rituals of Tantra. And then I told you about that really um, controversial practice in left-hand path Tantra, or Kaula Tantra. It's called the five jewels. Basically, the practice is this. If you truly understand this argument, you should have no problem ingesting the following substances. They're called the five jewels. This might freak you out. The first is semen. Second is menses. The third is feces. Fourth is urine. And the last one is phlegm. These are five substances that traditional Indian society, and in fact, all society, see as ick. They're separated from the body, you know? But what happened to your non-duality? Isn't everything within you anyway? <laughs> so hey, make no mistake. We really do walk this talk, you know? Um, so that's the first thing. It should make you fearless. Second, it should make you all loving. Uh, third, and this is most important, it should make you no longer craving. Now you know there's nothing apart from you that can complete you. You are all the things. So you should no longer like do this to grab and pull back. Does that mean all desire goes away? Uh, for some schools of philosophy, yes. But for most, your desires just change. Where before, you desire to take to complete yourself, now you desire to give, to share of the completeness that you already are, you know? So that's the thing, fearlessness, all inclusivity, um, and uh, desirelessness, generally we call it, or lack of craving. Finally, I'll add one more thing in there, intense creativity. You know, because once all your own bullshit is out of the way, um, naturally, you will feel a spontaneous desire to teach, to make art, to write novels, to work a soup kitchen, whatever. Activity should come. Yes, non-attachment, not to desire, but to all things, Vanessa. So attachment, um, you know, you no longer want anything because they are no longer seen as separate from you. You know, this philosophy is actually sometimes called Asparsha Yoga. You know what that is? Asparsha yoga. Some of you might have heard me say sparsha means touch. You know, sparsha in Sanskrit means to touch. Asparsha yoga means the contactless yoga. Because <laughs> you see, right, to touch, there must be two things. For me to touch you, I have to be here, you have to be there. You know, but this is the contactless yoga because there's only one thing. 
So what can touch what now, you tell me? So it's the contactless yoga. So my work now is to show you that there is only one thing. That's what these philosophies are here to do. If they can do that, they will radically change the way you experience your life. So here's how they do it. Here's the first argument. I'll give you a few. And the first is this. So follow this closely. The seer and the seen are always different from one another. Drig Drishya Viveka, it's called. Discrimination between the seer and the seen. So this is the first premise. I am the seer, right? I'm seeing. Let's say this. You know, I, I always joke when I do this argument, I should get brand endorsements because I'm always holding up an object. So I should be like, I am the seer and the scene is Jun Bimacha, prepare daringly. <laughs> anyway, so I am the seer and the object is the scene, right? Seer, scene. Now here's the thing. This is a fact of your life. The seer and the scene are always different. Yes or no? That's, that's obvious. I know I'm the seer, this is the scene. Okay, second thing. I am the seer, I am not the scene. So my experience of my life is not as a matcha cup for now. It's as me looking at the matcha cup, you know? So that's the only two premises that we start off with. The seer and the scene are two dif different things. And I am the seer and the scene is not me. Or to use more traditional language, consciousness is on the side of the seer, you know? Okay. Now, with those two premises, uh, let's, let's do the argument. So if I look at this cup now, my eyes, meaning the organ of my eyes, is the seer and the cup is the scene. My eyes are not the cup. So I am the eye, I am not the cup. Okay, I got that. I am not the cup. So far, so good, right? Okay, even this is difficult for many people. If you hit their car, they will act like you've harmed their body. If you take their stuff, they will act like you're taking their limbs away from them. So even this step is not easy for some people. They cannot distinguish between the seer and the seen. So they, they don't yet know that they are not their stuff. So bury me with it, you know? <laughs> anyway, so this first step distinguishes you from your things. If you came to my house now and took my matcha, I would be a little upset. I would, honestly, telling you like straight up, I'm going to be upset. I've got about, wait, five or four hours of this lecture ahead of me. We finish in one hour, don't worry. Uh, we finish at eight, but usually we stick around till midnight for those of you who usually stick around. So I'm gonna need this matcha, but if you took it, it wouldn't be the end of my life. I, mean, I wouldn't hold a grudge against you forever. Okay, now, now's the next step. Be, the eyes were the seer and the cup was the scene. But now I can take this one step further. My mind is looking at my eyes now. So you can try this. If you blink your eyes, you know, or, you know, if I take my glasses off, I notice it gets blurry. If I put my glasses back on, it's a little bit better. I should really get these prescriptions checked. But you're noticing that you can observe your eyes. This is radical. It means that your eyes have now become the scene and your mind is the seer. The seer and the scene are two separate things. So the mind and the body are separate. And here's the clincher. I am the mind. I am not the body. Ooh, that's a big one, right? That sounds like, I don't know if I want to accept that premise, Nish, you know. And don't worry, I will 
give you a few more steps that will make you all minds and all bodies. But for now, the first step is to recognize if you agree the seer and the scene are different. And if you agree that you are the seer, not the scene, then you are no more your body or any of the organs of sensation than you are the cup. Both of them are just the scene. Do you see? It's very subtle. But follow it closely. You're distinguishing between the seer and the seen. I am the one who is seeing. I am not the cup because I've established that the cup is the seen. But if I am able to establish that my eyes can stand in relation to my mind the same way the cup stood in relation to my eyes, then I have effectively proven with your own two premises that you are not the body. It's very subtle, huh? Okay, now it gets a little weirder. We can go one more step. And the next step is, so are you the mind? No, you are not the mind. You are the one who watches the mind. Do you see? So now awareness, which in this tradition we call the Sakshi, is the true seer. And the mind is the uh, uh, object or the scene. So you are no more the mind. Then your mind is the body. Then the body is the cup. So you are not the mind, you are not the body, you are not the cup. Oh, tough one, huh? You are the awareness. So you might say, Nish, what about pain? You know, of course you're the body, because if I come over there and I slap you across the face, you're going to say, ow, right? Okay, that's only because you have trained me for 24 something years to see myself as this body. So if you slap it, I'm going to say my pain. You know, but if I start to realize that I am no more the body than I am the cup, it will just be pain. And then it doesn't necessarily have to turn to suffering. Do you see? The thing about suffering is not what happens to you. It's how you feel about what happens to you. So suffering, as we described three classes ago, is nothing more than your protesting to experience. No, this shouldn't be happening to me. How dare you slap me, Song? I was just in Song's house just now. She served the most beautiful mac and cheese. And uh, it would be sad if I got slapped right after that. That would be like good cop, bad cop. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, so if I know that I am not the body, I'm not the mind, then I'm no longer going to use language like I am in pain. No, there is pain in the body. You know, I'm no longer going to say uh, like my body, you know, a body. You know, there is pain in this body, maybe something like that. So one of the ways you can practice this philosophy right now is to change your languaging. Your languaging is your meaning making system, and it often reifies or reinforces your conceptual framework about the world. So if you adopt this new paradigm, you will change your language in two significant ways. One, you will stop saying I am sad or I am happy. No, you are not. The body feels a sensation. The mind feels an emotion. There is sadness, there is happiness, but you've distinguished it. It's no longer my sadness, my happiness. So it's no longer your problem. Do you see? A lot of people will resist this because we want our suffering. Our suffering characterizes us. Our victim narratives give us identity. You know, who would we be if we didn't have a problem with these other people? You know, who would we be if we couldn't snap at our partner for making us feel this way? You need to take care of my feelings because you're my partner. So you see this languaging. Advaita Vedanta starts with this argument. And this is Sankhya, by the way. It's different philosophy. But Sankhya says, okay, 
Change the languaging. Try that first. So instead of saying, I am happy, say, there is happiness. And see what that does for your reaction. So right now, if sadness arises, before your mind can co-opt it and say, I am sad, if you're able to say, there is sadness, it's not dissociation. Instead, it's the ultimate form of experiencing that sadness for what it is as a vibratory experience in consciousness. You're no longer like clinging onto it. You're able to just step back and watch it, be with it. And then you might not snap at your partner. You know, you'll find that it comes and it goes, much like the smells, tastes, and sounds in our opening meditation today. See? Mm. So this first step is already a big step, right? But we call this a very immature um, Advaita Vedanta. So this is only one step of two. So the first step is, I am not the body, I am not the mind. This is what yoga wants to do. Yoga is the practice of disengaging from your body and your mind. So yoga says, the world exists, it's just that I am categorically different from it. So the yoga is a yogis, yogi is a bit of a Puritan, no? Kind of turns her nose up at the world as this unclean, impure place, and she wants to have nothing to do with it. So she will go and find a Himalayan cave and meditate in the Himalaya. So yoga is a dropout practice. It says prakriti or nature is degenerate, or not to say that, not really moralistic, it's just not, it's suffering inducing, let's say that. And yoga is the practice of being purusha, spirit. Does this sound familiar? It's exactly Christianity, the world and the kingdom of heaven. It's exactly Plato, the realm of forms and this degenerate world. This dualistic philosophy exists all throughout culture. You know, every different culture has it. You know, heaven or this earth, all that stuff. Okay, here is the next step, and this is the clincher. Advaita Vedanta comes in. And if you're interested in studying this non-duality, the text that I'm going to pull the next argument from is the Mandukya Karika by Gaudapada, who is Shankaracharya's guru's guru, Param Guru. So Gaudapada is like, I think, around the 7th century, you know, early 7th century. And he says this, notice there are three states of consciousness. You know, this is the second argument. There is your waking state, there is your dreaming state, and there is your deep sleep state. Jagrat, waking, Svapna, uh, dreaming, Shushupti, deep sleep. These are three states of awareness, you know, and you're like, okay, yeah. Here's the clincher. For some reason, you believe this waking state alone is real. The dreaming state isn't, and the deep sleep state isn't. But here's the thing, right? Why do you think that? You know, are you only invested in this world because there seems to be some kind of continuity? You know, I woke up Nish, I went to bed Nish. You know, the same financial difficulty um, a person has when they go to sleep is the same financial difficulty they find when they wake up. So they're like, okay, I can restart the video game at my checkpoint. So this is real. <laughs> in your dream, though, you're all sorts of different things. You're... Um, you know, you're like the purple hippopotamus on Mars, and then tomorrow you're the princess, and the next day you're this and all that. So you're, but here's the thing, who you are in your dream is categorically different than who you were in the waking world, you know? Nish plays guitar with David Lee Roth in his dream, in his waking world, you know, he's just, so like, that's the thing, it's like, those are two different yous, and the third thing is, nor is there a dreaming you, nor is there a waking you, it's just deep sleep. But you were there also. And the reason I say that is because no one is ever surprised when they wake up after deep sleep. 
It's not like you had a discontinuity in your awareness. You wake up and you're like, ah, I slept dreamlessly. I slept like a log. Isn't that weird? Nish wasn't there. Guitar player David Lee Roth's band Purple Walrus wasn't there. But someone was there. Someone was there to experience the experience of having slept deeply. How bizarre. Might that mean that Nish, that my dream purple walrus and whoever I was in deep sleep are all in me? I happen to not be Nish. I am not the purple walrus. I am the one that watches all three. Do you see? So what we call is call this the Thuria, the fourth state. Thuria means literally fourth. Uh, but it's only the fourth because, as they say, you're counting from Maya, meaning you're counting from illusion. Now, here's the most beautiful thing. Those states emanated from that one awareness. Why do we say that? Because if it wasn't for your awareness, those states wouldn't be there. In other words, you have no way of proving that things exist apart from your own awareness of them. You simply don't. So you might tell me, Duh, Nish, there's a world out there. Even when I close my eyes, it's there. No, it's not. You cannot show that to be true. You can say, no, Nish, are you trying to tell me that this room is not here when I step out of it? Exactly. Okay, fine. You want to tell me that, Nish? I'll do a scientific experiment and I'll prove you wrong. I'm going to set up a camera, video camera, and it's going to video the room. We're all going to step out and we're going to come back in. And when we look at the camera, lo and behold, Nish, the room is here. I got you. Okay, but wait. You are still looking at the video camera. It's still in your awareness. Do you not see anything that you can verify requires your awareness? If your awareness is not there, it cannot be proven to exist apart from you. You might say, no, other people see it. Okay, again, a concept. Do you see? And I love atomic measurement because quantum mechanics loves this. I don't want to associate Advaita Vedanta to any quantum mechanics. Like they say, you know, the uh, corridors of science are littered with the skeletons of dead theories. So we must not be too quick to link our philosophies to the latest, you know, scientific, um, what do you call it, fad. Um, but yes, like they say, they're echoes, you know, the, uh, the uh, observer effect, Max Planck's observatory universe. Uh, all of these are echoes of this philosophy. And this philosophy says, there is no world apart from you perceiving it. Therefore, you emanated this world from your awareness. You know, so the argument concludes this way. What you perceive now is your waking reality, your dreaming reality, and your deep sleep reality. You haven't yet got an insight into what you really are, which is the fourth, or I call it the one, the mysterious witness behind all of those. Once you establish yourself, whether by deep meditation or whether by insight in that, suddenly everything changes. And, and here's why it changes. You no longer feel so invested in the storytelling of the waking, I don't know, Nish, the dreaming walrus, the deep sleeping nothing, you know, because you know yourself to be beyond those things. So I'm going to tell you three stories now to close up. And I will take, unfortunately, maybe 10-ish more minutes, 
10 or 12 more minutes. So if you do have to leave at 8, I want to respect your time. Please feel free to drop off at 8. I am recording this and they're always going to be available on Patreon right after. So if you do need to leave, please leave. But I do want to make a very important point that I don't want to leave before I make. Because I'm always teasing you, you know, with Kashmiri Shaivism and we never really get there because of all this preliminary work. But it's important. So um, once you recognize this one, you're no longer invested in all these Dream states, waking states. So the story, and there are three stories, you know, to explain this. Uh, the first story, and these stories, you cannot do religious philosophy without parables <laughs> or stories, you know. The first story is, there was, I think it was uh, Maula Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi. So this is an Islamic story from the Sufi tradition. There was a smuggler. And the smuggler was a famous smuggler. He used to be able to smuggle all sorts of things past the customs uh, at various kingdoms. So one day, he was smuggling, you know, and these two guards at the gate said, today, I'm going to, I'm going to catch him out. I'm going to figure out what it is he's smuggling, and I'm going to catch him, because I know he's a smuggler. I can't prove it, but that mischievous smile, I know it. So the guards are trying to figure out what he's smuggling, you know, but they can never quite do it. They never find out what he's hiding. So one day, many, many years later, you know, the smuggler has retired from smuggling and the customs patrol guard has retired from guarding. And they meet in a tea shop. You know, they're drinking tea. And the customs guard said, Hey, Mullah Nasruddin, do you remember me? I'm the border guard. I used to check you out all the time. Okay, look, Paul, I'm no longer doing that. And you're obviously no longer smuggling. So maybe now, you know, for, for old time's sake, you can tell me, what it was that you were smuggling. Okay, so you know, back in the day, you have donkeys and you have the cart and then you take things with the cart and everything. It's like, where did you hide it? What were you smuggling? And the smuggler says, oh, it's very simple. I was smuggling donkeys. <laughs> Do you see? It's in plain sight. So this philosophy, it's not like back there somewhere and only in meditation you will see this to be true. And I heard a joke, Swami Sarvaprayananda said a joke. He said, is your God, he said, uh, so your God can only be discovered in meditation? Wow, how sad. You put God in a prison and threw away the key. The prison is called meditation. <laughs> so a God that can only be encountered in meditation is a pretty pussy-ass God, no? <laughs> That's the joke, law. That's the joke. Anyway, um... So uh, this is not something that can only happen when you're in deep, deep meditation. It should be obvious. It's just you miss it. It's in plain sight. Uh, another story in India during the 9th, 10th century, these tantric masters used to live with their partners, their consorts, who in the tantric tradition are always more evolved than them. So the tantra tradition always see the female as uniquely predisposed to spirituality. So she is always his teacher, you know, Shakti always teaches Shiva. Uh, uh, um, so there's a story, there's a great saint and he's sitting and meditating and he opens his eyes and closes it again. His wife rushes up to him and takes his hand and says, my beloved, and I love this poem, it says, in an ambrosial voice, she asked him, my beloved, what have you gained by opening and closing your eyes again? And he straight mansplains to her. He says, throws her hands away and says, I need to return to meditation because I finally found it. I found repose in my true nature. So I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to stay absorbed in this awareness. You continue to suffer because you continue to evolve, involve yourself in the world with all these suffering inducing things. 
she laughs at him and says, you fool, your understanding is as far away from you as the sky is from the earth. That's what she says to him. She says, this is not something that you need to close your eyes or open your eyes to experience. This is not something you need to do anything to experience. It's something that is always true all of the time in every encounter of reality, you know? Mm. Third story. There is a prince of Kashi. Yeah, burn. <laughs> I, I will show you the text, the Traipura. It's beautiful. It's actually from the culture that I grew up in, the Sri Vidya school in South India. But anyway, so um, the last story, this is my favorite. This is a story about how you deal with suffering, why suffering goes away. There was a prince of Kashi. Kashi is a kingdom, mountain kingdom in northern India. So the prince of Kashi. You'll hear Swami Sarvaprayananda tell the story a lot. He tells it very well. It's a well-known story. But the prince, when he was very young, they staged a play. You know, so there was a royal play, theater. And it was called the Princess of Kashi. That was the name of the play. Um, but they cast the prince of Kashi as the princess. So he was so young and so cute that he could pass for a, you know, young girl child. So they, you know, painted his face up, gave him the lipstick and, you know, all Indian royalty, they have long hair, they always oil our hair. So if we have this, and you know, if you see once I was, my band, we were looking for costumes for Halloween and our costume maker was measuring my hips and she was like, Nish, your hips are wider than your waist. I think that's true for Indian men. I think we do have wider hips. I don't know. Our art seems to confirm that. Anyway, so you can imagine, you know, this young boy very convincingly dressed up as the princess of Kashi. So they had their play and his mother was so taken up by how beautiful her son was dressed as a woman that she had the court painter paint the picture of the child, you know, paint him up. So she painted the picture and put it aside and was forgotten. Many, many years later, the Prince of Kashi is now a young man. And he's walking around the kingdom and suddenly he finds this picture and he goes, oh, she must be around my age. The Princess of Kashi, because there's a name, you know, Princess of Kashi. Princess of Kashi. And suddenly he becomes morose. And his parents are thinking, why is he so sad? Why is he not involving himself in the games? of his youth anymore, all of that stuff. And so the minister, an old and wise minister, was sent to go and figure it out. You know, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Why is this boy so morose? So they went to figure it out. Ah, two Shakespeare's in one day, huh? Good, good, doing well. Anyway, so these two, these, this minister went to go ask um, this boy, why are you so sad, prince? And the boy said, oh, because I'm in love. Robert Smith from The Cure, sensitive. So um, the minister said, that's so good. That's, that's good news. Who are you in love with? And the boy said, uh, a princess. Minister, that's even better. Okay, we can set this up. Who is she? Where does she live? And we'll send a royal party over immediately. We'll get you married within the fortnight. Let's go. Um, good wingman, you know, this minister. And the prince said, no, that's a problem. I don't really know where she lives and I actually haven't even met her yet. So the minister says, okay, that's a bit weird. Uh, how did you come to know? And he said, oh, there's a picture. I saw a picture. So the minister said, okay, take me and show me the picture. So they went down to the treasury, you know, and they looked around and he produced the picture and the minister was like, all right. Uh, Swami Sarvapranana was, I, I think you need to sit down for this, <laughs> that joke he makes. Um, so the minister tells him, so notice this, the princess of Kashi 
was seen as separate from the prince because of his ignorance. He didn't realize that that was him. Once the minister showed him that the object of his desire was always with him all the time, he no longer desires it as the other. So he no longer craves it. So yoga says, turn away. You know, yoga is the philosophy of disengaging from the world. Like, you're going to be tempted. It's going to cause you suffering. Turn away. Here's eight steps. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayam, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. Very complex philosophy. But the goal of this philosophy is to shut down the mind. Yoga, Chitta, Vritti, Niroda. Turn away. Advaita Vedanta says, no, don't turn away. Look, just know that it's you. You know? Um, very difficult philosophy. Because as long as you perceive separation, you'll perceive craving and you'll see fear. So how do you know you've truly understood this? When there is no longer craving or fear. When you can look at someone else, look them in the eyes, and know that it's just you looking at you, you know? Yes, wonderful, Caleb. Good night to you, brother. Thank you, Jessica. Okay, so our final detail to contextualize suffering. Only one thing exists. Nothing can be showed to exist separate from this one thing. So awareness is not in your body. Your body is in your mind, is in awareness. The world... By the way, that Norse, the world is a Norse word, verold. Ver means man. Verol means the man world. You know, so world means your perceptual framework of sensation. All of that exists within you. You know, you are what give it reality. So if you take you away, all of this goes away too. You know, that's, that's important. So why, and this is the crucial question, why did you make this mistake? If you are just awareness emanating the world, how did you come to mistake yourself as this limited body-mind? You know, what happened? Somebody knock you on the head? Did a men in black fellow show up and click a button and you forgot? How did it happen? So the Advaitins, they, they generally say, uh, Brahman Satyam Jagat Mithya, which is only the one awareness is real, the world is an appearance in reality. So the property of awareness is to appear as the world. Um, and there's no reason why it does this. It just does this. Um, and it must do this because that's your experience. So when you correct this error, it's not that the world goes away, it like blinks out of existence. It's more the case that you realize it's not as real as you thought it was and you can repose in what's real. So your life is extraordinary. It's delightful. But the world is always seen as illusory. So an Advaitin doesn't really worship, you know, like gods aren't real, gods and goddesses. All of that is seen as just Jagat Mithya. It's just appearance. Only I am real. Um, Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. Only I exist. By the way, not I in the sense of Nish. The, mind this, okay? A lot of people have God complexes when they study Advaita Vedanta. They think I'm talking about consciousness lower C, which is the consciousness of Nish. Not at all. Uh, I'm talking about consciousness capital C, which is the one behind Nish, behind the purple walrus playing guitar with David Lee Roth, behind Deep Sleep. So if I know myself to be that, then I have nothing to do with Nish, really. I mean, this is a dancing monkey puppet. Uh, let him lecture all night. Why do I care? Praise, blame, death, sickness. They happen to Nish, just like they happen to my dream walrus. Doesn't touch me. Asparsha yoga, see? Okay. Kashmiri Shaivism adds one more detail, and we'll close with this. And we can do it in five minutes. Very easy. Um, but this is the detail. Kashmiri Shaivism says, wait just one moment. Must it be the case 
that it just happened by accident that this world is an appearance. You know? So Advaita says, I don't have to explain the world because it doesn't exist. So I don't have to explain to you something that never was there or never will be there. It's only there by appearance. Kashmiri Shaivism goes one step further and says, no, 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 the world is not here by appearance or as like a mistake. The world is here as art. So this appearance is real and it was emanated for nothing but an aesthetic reason. Okay, so Advaita Vedanta says monad consciousness the Tao. Yeah, notice Lao Tzu doesn't really talk about the Tao that much. He even says, he who talks about the Tao knows nothing about the Tao. Who talks not about the Tao knows about the Tao. <laughs> it's not the Tao that can be spoken of, all of that. He's like Advaita, you know, they don't really talk about what Brahman is beyond that it is, that it's pure awareness, and that it's blissfully aware. So once you encounter it, you feel blissful. Okay, but Kashmiri Shaivism says this, no, we're going to call this thing Shiva. Last week I introduced you to the idea. Shiva, she means uh, uh, ground, same as Shavasana, corpse. Va means vastness. So Shiva is the vast ground of being. Shiva is not different from Shakti. So Shakti is Shiva's energy aspect. Now, the tantras frame this world or your experience of it as a romance between Shiva and Shakti, but it's a pretty schizophrenic and masturbatory romance because they are not different. Although, in all the tantras, they are often depicted as two people talking, flirting, you know? So they say this, this whole world is the flirtationship of two aspects of one thing. Shiva is consciousness. Shakti is the energy of consciousness, and she is the world, and you are it. Do you see? So everything that you see around it is you, and the Vanessa-ness or the song-ness is one thing in a vibratory world of many things, and they are all within you. And in this world of vibratory experience, each experience arises as art, for the delight of Shiva reflecting on her own true nature as Shiva. So in this philosophy, awareness has a game to play. It's called Icha or urge. Its urge as awareness is to be aware of itself. And the only way it can do that is by emanating a world that acts as a pivot. See, if there was no world, there would just be awareness. But thanks to the world and thanks to you as an individual, that awareness can pivot back on itself. And that's the name of the game, really. So what is suffering? Actually, this philosophy says, think of suffering in three ways. One, it's all functional. So it's, it's a blessing because sooner or later, the most hardcore materialist atheist the most dogmatic, Bible-thumping Christian. They will go to war with one another. They will kill and die for their beliefs. They will live a life of such contracted suffering that eventually they too will say there must be a better way to do this than this. Their suffering will eventually lead them to genuine spirituality. You know, so the suffering is functional. That's one way to look at it. So when you're suffering, that's only because you are seeing yourself and the world in a way that's wrong. Once we fix that perception, suffering sees us. So you can think of suffering as a feedback mechanism. It's just there to help you realize what you are. 
so you can welcome it as a feedback mechanism. So this is kind of cliche, right? All suffering is a lesson. But no, that's one way to see it. Now, this is what I really wanted to get to today. After all of this, this idea was kind of my goal. And what I wanted to convey is your suffering is not just functional. So it's not just operational to get you to spirituality. It is an intrinsic explanation of your true nature. So your suffering is caused by you seeking security, by you seeking pleasure, and by you seeking power. You know intuitively that you deserve those things. And you know that you deserve them times a million. So a little pleasure doesn't satisfy you. A little power won't satisfy you. A little security won't satisfy you. Why? Because you're not gonna go home until you get all security, all pleasure and all power. Do you know why? Because that is your true nature. So what you hunger for is not pleasure, not power, not security. What you hunger for is to come in contact with what you really are, which is the source of power, the source of pleasure, and the source of all security. So when you can rest in your true nature, ah, how beautiful. So now you don't demonize pleasure anymore. You know that it's just a kind of, maybe, I don't want to say immature because even that demonizes it. There's no moralism that we like here. It's just one way that you're trying to recapture your divinity. So every time you experience an orgasm, not only should you be interested that it's fleeting, you know, so you can't live for orgasms. Many people try and they fail. It's fleeting, you know, but it's also an insight into the true nature that you are. So here's the promise. When you uncover your Shiva Shakti nature, um, you will never need anything again. You will never fear anything again because you will recognize that you are the fountain from which springs all power, all security. And here's the most beautiful thing, all bliss. So your life becomes an electric intensity. Every encounter you have in your life is a romance. It's a romance of one. So when sadness comes, when grief comes, does that mean you won't feel them? Certainly not. That's toxic positivity. Instead, when sadness and grief arises, it will no longer be felt as I shouldn't be having this. No, it's I emanated this in order for awareness to be aware of itself. And this is the particular experience which at this moment is allowing me to do that. You know, so suffering is now an enlivening experience. So hopefully by the end of this lecture, you can see why you suffer and why all suffering is to be valued and why it's actually indicative of your true nature. You know, so having done that, I'm very satisfied. Let us close with our OM, yes? So sorry I took a 17 extra minutes today, but thank you for bearing with me. And uh, as always, we close